0: Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins, that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's b-a-d, dot slash obscura. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat, next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Market, leafy and waterfront suburb of Neutral Bay, is situated on the lower north shore of Sydney. Located in close proximity to the Sydney CBD, the stunning harbor views and cosmopolitan lifestyle are a drawcard for young professionals, executives, and families. Parks adjacent to the water provide the perfect backdrop to relax and take in the breathtaking scenery. Architecturally, low-rise and medium-density Art Deco apartment and townhouse complexes dominate Neutral Bay's steep-winding roads and short side streets. A handful of high-rise buildings, heritage-listed 19th-century Federation homes, and Arborside mansions have seen property prices increase exponentially, reflecting the suburbs' appeal and livability. Neutral Bay's commercial center is Military Road, one of the busiest arterial roads on the Lower North Shore. It's the main gateway to Sydney's picturesque and world-renowned northern beaches. Along the corridor, a mix of business and residential complexes play host to a thriving cafe and dining culture, including a strip of takeaway shops that do a brisk trade late into the evenings. The most popular and historic commercial establishment in Neutral Bay is the Oaks Hotel, which opened in 1885 and is situated in a prime location on the busy intersection of Military Road and Ben Boyd Road. The pub that locals know today features an impressive beer garden, where the focal point namesake is a majestic oak tree. Revelers during summer can kick back under its ample shade, while the thousands of fairy lights that adorn the tree's sprawling branches start to gently twinkle as night falls. As a social hub of the suburb, Oaks is an institution where the Lower North Shore residents relax, celebrate, or enjoy a quiet drink. It's certainly not a place locals go expecting to not make it home. Now, let's get on with it. Part 1. plain Sailing Morgan Huxley was born on June 5th, 1982, to his parents, Alan and Deidre, Known as Dee, the youngest of three siblings, he was known to his sister Tiffany and brother Oliver, by nickname Little Mog. Alan and Dee's marriage broke down when Morgan was still in primary school, but he remained close to both his parents. At Lane Cove West Primary School, Morgan's sense of adventure and love of sports saw him forge friendships which would last a lifetime. His best friend Chris told the Daily Telegraph newspaper that he and Morgan spent hours tearing around on their BMX bikes and spoke of Morgan's talents at high jump. As years passed, the pair also enjoyed playing soccer, golf, going snowboarding, and sharing a passion for motorsports and boating. Morgan was obsessed with the late Brazilian Formula One champion Ayrton Senna, even naming his dog after the racing star. By the time he'd reached his teen years, Morgan had become obsessed with life on the water, thanks to his mother buying him a small aluminum boat called a tinny. Morgan's fascination with the way machinery operated also saw him develop a strong interest in mechanics. Loved getting underneath the bonnet of his car and learned how everything worked. When Morgan graduated from Hunters Hill High School in 2000, he went on to complete a business diploma at an inner-city technical college. Soon after, he relocated to Launceston in the southern state of Tasmania to study ocean engineering for a year. After completing his studies, Morgan returned to Sydney, where he continued to live with his mother, Dee, at her home in the inner-west waterfront suburb of Balmain. He stayed in close contact with his father, Alan, who by this time had been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and was living in a residential care facility. Morgan started working as a marine engineering contractor at various locations around Sydney Harbor. Morgan continued to maintain a close friendship not only with his best friend Chris, but a female friend named Jessica, whom he'd also known since primary school. Morgan and Jessica started dating, and during their four-year relationship, the couple traveled to Tasmania, the Sundays in Queensland, and as far as Italy. Despite breaking up in 2011, the pair remained close, with Jessica fondly recalling her happiest times as those spent with Morgan. By 2013, 31-year-old Morgan was running his own wharf engineering business, named Huxley Marine, which was based in Blackwattle Bay, not far from the family home in Balmain. Morgan's strong work ethic saw him working back-breaking hours, building pontoons, jetties, and upscale boat sheds for residents of Sydney's exclusive waterfront enclaves. Despite the convenience of the location, Morgan eventually made the move from his mother's home to Neutral Bay, on Sydney's lower north shore. He settled right into life of the bustling suburb, becoming a frequent customer of the local Chinese takeaway, where he always ordered chicken wonton noodle soup and steamed dumplings. Morgan also became a regular patron at the Oaks Hotel, where he was well known to the staff. The popular pub was the perfect place to enjoy a beer or two after work. Before making the five-minute walk home to the Cream Brick Townhouse apartment, Morgan ran in nearby Watson Street with his flatmate, a 24-year-old Irish physiotherapist named Jean, Never bothered Morgan to call into the pub on his own for a quiet drink, his easygoing and affable nature, that he engaged in conversation with anyone, regardless of who they were. His outgoing personality, reverent sense of humor, and desire to be inclusive of everyone in social situations, endeared himself to those around him. Part 2. In Deep Water On the afternoon of September 7, 2013, Morgan drove to his best friend Chris's engagement party in the nearby North Shore suburb of Lane Cove. The previous month, Chris asked Morgan to be the best man at his upcoming wedding the following year, and Morgan enthusiastically accepted the honor. Morgan had planned to head back to the Oaks Hotel around 8 p.m. to meet up with a girl he'd recently started dating named Rebecca but Morgan had such a good time at the engagement party, the night got away from him faster than anticipated. Rebecca arrived at the pub and waited around, finally sending Morgan a text at 9.20 p.m., asking where he was. Half an hour later, Morgan responded, assuring Rebecca he was coming to meet her as arranged. But by this stage, Rebecca had had enough. Before leaving the pub around 11 p.m., She texted Morgan back saying, I'm done with you. Morgan had also been in contact with his former girlfriend Jessica throughout the night and the pair had discussed catching up at the pub after the party. At one stage, Jessica was already on her way to the pub when Morgan contacted her to say he was still at the engagement party. According to the Sydney Morning Herald newspaper, Morgan later called Jessica around 10.15 p.m., to ask if she could pick him up from the party. But it was too late in the evening for Jessica, who had studied commitments the following day. At around 12.30 a.m., Morgan called a cab with Chris and his fiance back to Neutral Bay, where the couple coincidentally lived around the corner from Morgan. Morgan tried to convince Chris and his fiance to join him for a nightcap, but the couple wanted to call it a night. Morgan saw them on their way, and quickly went to a nearby convenience store to withdraw some cash. Just after 1 a.m., Morgan made his way to the entrance to the pub's rear beer garden, but was turned away by security staff because he was barefoot, having left his shoes back at the engagement party. Instead, Morgan entered via the pub's front bar and found himself a spot at his regular table. He quietly drank a beer while responding to Rebecca's earlier text message apologizing for standing her up, but she didn't reply. Morgan texted Jessica asking if she wanted to come over, but again, there was no reply. Morgan finished his beer just as the pub was closing around 1.30 a.m. He slid off the bar stool, placed his sunglasses on top of his head, and headed out into the night. Around five to ten minutes later, Morgan's flatmate Jean stirred from her sleep as she heard Morgan arrive home make his way up the stairs to his bedroom, in their two-story apartment. Not long afterwards, Jean heard what she thought was a knock on the front door, but in the fog of half-sleep, she couldn't be sure. She then heard a second, louder knock. Jean's boyfriend often visited, but she always knew when he was coming over, and anyway, he had a key. Jean was expecting her boyfriend that night once he'd finished his shift at a takeaway shop in Western Sydney. So the knocking was puzzling. Jean knew Morgan was very relaxed about security and often forgot to lock the front door. She ignored the knocking, assuming it was a friend of Morgan's. Jean checked the time before putting her headphones in, hoping for the music to lull her back to sleep. It was now 2.30 a.m. Jean stirred again not long after this time waking to some shuffling sounds coming from Morgan's bedroom. Jean heard what sounded like scratches on a chalkboard, followed by a thump and indecipherable mumbling. Loud yelping noises emanated from the direction of Morgan's bedroom, so Jean decided to see what was going on. When she got to her flatmate's bedroom door and turned on the light, she was greeted by a sickening sight. Morgan was lying near the doorway, covered in blood, with a gaping stab wound to his neck. He was naked from the waist down, wearing his t-shirt. In Jean's panic, she instinctively dialed 999, which was Irish emergency number. Frantic, she called her boyfriend, who was already on his way over from work, and who called 000. Jean instinctively started to perform CPR on her unconscious flatmate. When the ambulance arrived at 3.05 a.m., Morgan was barely clinging to life. Police arrived ten minutes later and observed the large puncture wound to Morgan's neck and numerous stab wounds on his torso, upper arms, back and head. His bed was covered in blood. Paramedics worked desperately in the ambulance to stabilize Morgan, who by now had gone into cardiac arrest. But by the time they arrived at the hospital, there was nothing more they could do. Morgan was dead. Part 3. Boiling Over At the post-mortem examination, the forensic pathologist identified more than 20 stab wounds to Morgan's middle and upper back, neck and head. His injuries included internal hemorrhaging, penetration of his chest cavity, injury to his lungs, and damage to his jugular vein. Postmortem post-mortem x-ray revealed a small piece of metal Deeply embedded in Morgan's skull, which was the tip of the knife that had broken off during the ferocious attack. Toxicology tests revealed Morgan's blood alcohol level was 0.220. Morgan had sustained deep defensive wounds to his upper arms, shoulder, and right hand. While three significant and fatal stab wounds to his neck severed his carotid artery, Morgan had been stabbed a total of 28 times. With multiple stab wounds being recorded as the cause of death a fingerprint that didn't belong to morgan his flatmate jean or her boyfriend was found on morgan's bedroom door and foreign dna was found on his penis back at morgan's apartment watson street had been entirely cordoned off and the area was crawling with police officers searching gardens drains and rubbish bins police found morgan's bedroom window was open There was no sign of his phone, nor was there any sign of a potential murder weapon. Local detectives quickly mobilized, focusing their inquiries on those who had last seen or spoken to Morgan in the hours before his death. Needless to say, everyone in Morgan's life was utterly devastated. The shock of having him ripped from their lives so suddenly didn't make any sense. He was a happy go lucky guy didn't wish anyone any harm that anyone knew of. At his emotional funeral at Macquay Park Crematorium a week following the murder, those close to Morgan shared their memories and love for him with a crowd of 400 mourners in attendance. His sister Tiffany said, I will never be the same without you, but I will see you in a sunny day, in a raindrop, in a spider's web. His brother Oliver was too overwrought to speak. But a letter he wrote was read aloud, saying, You were taken from us in a way which can only be described as horrific. You were taken from us, and you were so cheaply removed from your life. I promise we will get your deserved justice. I love you more than you will ever know. Morgan's former girlfriend, Jessica, tearfully recalled, When I was in his arms, it felt like home, and I will cherish these memories forever. I will miss his cheekiness and the sparkle in his brown eyes. I loved how he put people at ease with his honesty. This is no doubt why he had so many friends. Police continued with their inquiries. It emerged that a few weeks prior to the murder, Morgan had a confrontation with the landlord of his business premises. Morgan told his best friend Chris that the pair got into a heated argument one day and things escalated ending badly. When police interviewed Morgan's former business associates, they learned that part of Morgan's commercial lease in Blackwattle Bay included the use of his landlord's equipment. At the time Morgan died, he was already involved in a dispute with his landlord over a barge he'd borrowed. The landlord also told police that he and Morgan got into another argument over a generator Morgan had borrowed from another tenant. The landlord confronted Morgan about the issue, and in retaliation, Morgan waited until clients of his landlord were leaving the premises and mooned them. According to ABC News, the landlord, disgusted by Morgan's behavior, demanded that Morgan hand over his key to the premises immediately. The landlord was later said to have vented his frustrations to one of his employees about Morgan, saying, I'll square that little cunt up it's the last thing I do. A former girlfriend of Morgan's told the police she felt a woman may have killed him. While well, Gene's boyfriend told police Morgan used to bring women home to the apartment, his best friend Chris told police that Morgan had been having some slight trouble with a couple of former girlfriends. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that prior to the murder, Morgan had confided in Chris that one former girlfriend, we described as psycho, Visited his apartment one night unannounced. The newspaper report went on to say that Morgan had confided in Chris that it was difficult to talk to the woman involved because the pair always ended up yelling at each other. It was only early in the investigation, but despite the lack of any concrete evidence supporting the theory that Morgan was killed by a woman, the tabloid media leapt on this angle. The gossip and innuendo that circulated publicly shattered morgan's family his depiction by the media as someone who died as a consequence of juggling multiple and competing love interests wasn't the morgan they knew nor was it accurate morgan had only had three serious girlfriends one of them including his close friend jessica the sensationalist and tawdry editorial approach taken by the tabloid media was extremely upsetting And was a one-dimensional misrepresentation of Morgan. The suggestion that Morgan was somehow complicit in his own murder, due to his relationship history, deeply distressed his family and had a profound effect on them throughout the investigation and beyond. As various individuals were all eliminated and with no firm suspects in their sights, police turned to CCTV footage to see whether anyone had even a chance encounter with Morgan. On the night of his murder, given the cluster of small businesses located near the intersection of Military Road and Ben Boyd Road, police were able to access footage from various cameras. When police reviewed CCTV footage from the Oaks, they saw Morgan entering the front bar at 1 a.m. At 1.28 a.m., Morgan could be seen leaving the pub just before closing time and walking up Military Road in the direction of his apartment. As police continued to scour the grainy recordings, footage from one camera showed a young male, possibly a teenager, following Morgan just after he left the pub. The man was dressed in what looked like chef's pants and a black shirt with a crossbody backpack slung over his shoulder. The man in question appeared to be jogging after Morgan tried to catch up, like someone might if a person ahead of them had unwittingly dropped their wallet or keys. It was entirely possible that the man was running to the bus interchange located near Morgan's apartment, south of the intersection of Military Road and Watson Street, where buses frequently stop before heading over the Harbor Bridge and into the city. Police also had to factor in that Military Road on a weekend night is bustling, with revelers walking up and down the main road, coming and going from takeaway shops, bars and restaurants, and hailing cabs. The young man following Morgan and the footage could have been anyone, from anywhere. When police reviewed more of the footage between 1 to one thirty a.m., they noticed the same young man captured in a takeaway shop on Ben Boyd Road, opposite the Oaks, and loitering in a nearby laneway. At almost the same time Morgan left the pub, the young man left the takeaway shop and headed towards the Oaks, Detectives again approached business owners in the vicinity of the pub, this time asking if they could identify the young man captured following Morgan in the footage. On September 24th, police got the break they needed. Directly across Military Road from the Oaks was the Sydney Cooking School. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, the barista who worked at the cafe attached to the school and the owner were shown a still image from the CCTV footage of the young man jogging after Morgan as he left the pub. He was identified as an employee of the cooking school, who coincidentally was due to work that evening. His name was Daniel Kelsol. Born in New Zealand's capital city of Wellington on February 5, 1993, Daniel Kelsol was known by his middle name of Jack Jack and his two siblings were all adopted by their parents, Mark and Lynn, with Jack joining the family while still a baby. Unfortunately, there appears to be no publicly available information about Jack's biological parents. Jack was close to his adoptive parents and grew up in a warm and caring home environment. The Kelso children had more than a comfortable lifestyle thanks to Mark and Lynn's successful real estate business. Despite his happy home life, Jack found school challenging from a young age. He attended Montessori School, which has a child-centered educational model, focusing on self-directed learning. Jack was highly intelligent and made some friends. But when these social bonds were broken due to his peers moving or changing schools, he struggled. Jack had always been socially awkward, didn't quite seem to fit in, was always more interested in intellectual pursuits. He spent his spare time playing competitive card games, video games, chess, and watching Pokemon, anime, cartoons, and crime scene investigation shows. Jack was also a ferocious reader, his favorite genres being fantasy, science fiction, and true crime. At school, he was known as being generally quiet, polite, and friendly enough. But he also gained a reputation for being moody and quick-tempered. Jack had almost finished high school when the Montessori Academy he was attending closed down in 2009, so the only practical option was for Jack to finish his education by correspondence. Suddenly, socially isolated from a classroom environment, Jack had difficulties concentrating on schoolwork and didn't formally complete high school. By now, Jack openly identified as gay. Had come out to his family. His parents loved and accepted him no matter what. So for the Cal Souls, Jack's sexual orientation was never an issue. Jack enrolled in a hospitality course at the Wellington Institute of Technology in order to prepare him for chef apprenticeship, something he'd always dreamed of doing. But halfway through Jack's studies, his parents and sister relocated to Sydney, where his father Mark was expanding his business. The plan was for Jack to live with a family friend in New Zealand while he finished his course. Without his closest support network around him, Jack felt isolated and was reported to have become depressed. In late 2010, at age 17, Jack saw a psychiatrist and mentioned that he was experiencing sleep disturbance, thoughts of suicide. More troubling was his admission that he'd enjoyed inflicting pain on others in the past. Jack was prescribed antidepressants and an urgent referral was made to the local mental health team. Not long after, he was also prescribed low doses of antipsychotic medication to manage symptoms of bipolar disorder, including elevated mood, which were said to have been triggered by the antidepressant. When Jack last had a psychiatric review in December 2010, he was discharged from crisis team care. Provided with three-month supply of his antipsychotic medication, that same month, he joined his family in Australia. The Calsols had settled in the suburb of Neutral Bay, a 15-minute walk from the Oaks, and 10 minutes from Morgan Huxley's apartment. Jack continued to take his antipsychotic medication and increase the dose following medical advice. But his parents were concerned about the overall impact of the medication. Jack agreed to his father, Mark, seeking advice from a doctor about his concerns that Jack had been both misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder, was being over-medicated. Despite these health-related hurdles, Jack found work as a kitchen hand and cleaner at the Sydney Cooking School, directly opposite the Oaks, and only a short walk from his home. Jack's colleagues found him socially awkward and introverted, but he seemed like a gentle person. Who had been open with his new employer about his health saying he had autism diagnosis by coincidence Morgan Huxley often purchased his takeaway coffees from the cafe attached to the front of the cooking school the Sydney Morning Herald reported that while Morgan was almost a permanent fixture across the road at the Oaks Jack spent almost every day after work at a cluster of takeaway shops across from the pub on Ben Boyd Road he was such a frequent customer of a local pizza store that he was there up to five times a week. Despite securing employment, moving to be closer to his family, and enjoying life in his new neighborhood, all was not entirely well with Jack. In September 2011, Jack's doctor referred him to a new psychiatrist, who told Jack he didn't have bipolar disorder and was just depressed. However. He was advised to continue taking antipsychotic medication if it relieved his symptoms. When Jack saw his doctor in February 2012 to obtain a repeat prescription, he was told that it was no longer available for him at a lower cost on the government's pharmaceutical benefits scheme. Jack gradually weaned off the medication over the next month and was advised to see a psychiatrist. In May 2012, during an appointment with a new doctor, He mentioned he had experienced reoccurring and persistent thoughts about killing someone with a knife on his way home at night from work. On one occasion, he even went so far to take a knife home late one night, but didn't meet anyone along the way. Jack was unable to identify any reason for having these thoughts, telling his doctor he hadn't given any consideration as to the potential consequences. The doctor noted that Jack may have had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and mild Asperger's with comorbid depression. She referred Jack to another psychiatrist, whom he saw the following month. The Daily Telegraph later reported that during his session, Jack reiterated, I had thought of killing someone else, for the thrill of it. It sounds psychopathic, no idea why. Going to jail would depend on whether I wanted to get caught It would probably be a total random, with a knife. I could hide the body. But he explained this away by saying he'd experienced these thoughts only while having a depressive episode. That the antidepressants he'd been prescribed had helped. The psychiatrist referred Jack to... The psychiatrist referred Jack to a psychologist, whom he saw on a monthly basis, starting in June 2012. From the first appointment... The psychologist found Jack difficult to engage, but as Jack had never experienced auditory hallucinations or psychosis, or ever displayed aggressive or violent behavior, the psychologist assessed Jack's risk to himself and others as low. Police visited Jack's home on the afternoon of September 24th, just two weeks after Morgan's murder, where they questioned him about his movements on the night in question. Jack wore glasses. Had a slender build and a shock of curly auburn hair. Despite his awkward manner, he was pleasant and cooperative with the officers. When they asked if he had any knives in the home, he showed them his two 15 centimeter chef's knives and an ornamental samurai sword he kept in his bedroom. He told detectives that on September 7th, he started his shift at the cooking school at 4 p.m., that he'd finished washing dishes. Following a function that concluded at 11.30 p.m., Jack agreed to accompany officers back to the police station to answer further questions. He took with him a crossbody backpack, which was slung across his shoulder, for the duration of the interview. The questioning didn't exactly get off to an encouraging start, when Jack politely declined to provide fingerprints and a DNA sample to allow detectives to exclude him as a suspect. Jack also informed officers that his diagnosis of being on the autism spectrum may affect his ability to answer some questions.
2: you've indicated that you have um, autism is that correct yes what what, what what do you mean what sort
3: it's it hasn't been classified because it was caught so late on in life that I've already adjusted to having it it, it hasn't I haven't taken any. Concrete tests by my, my psychologist. I, I have seen a psychologist, and he has. I've been diagnosed with this. Uh, I don't actually know what specific level on the autism um, scale it is, but it, it does um, impede some um, functioning in everyday life. Like what, what? I can't tell balance. Uh, sorry, I can't tell measurement of any kind. So measurement of time, measurement of object, any type of measurement, I can't instinctively tell. He's an actor, so I can't, like, a pinch of salt. I just I can't do, continue, the same pinch of salt. So you ask me to do two pinches of salt, they will not be the same. You ask me to guess your measurement, I would not be able to at all. I wouldn't be able to say you're about this height, because I just
0: The Sydney Morning Herald reported that Jack told police that it wasn't until he had a conversation with a barista at his local cafe on the morning of September 8th that he learned there had been a murder, saying, I was horrified. I had no idea who was murdered, what had happened. Jack went on to say that given the shocking news, the thought of walking to work the following day made him feel unsafe so his father drove him to work. Jack was relaxed and continued to calmly answer detectives' questions, explaining that after the function at the cooking school concluded, on the night in question, he and his boss stayed behind to clean up and lock up. He left work, taking his bag he was wearing during the interview.
2: Did you, did you have a bag with you? Yes, this one. Thank you. That, and it's that particular bag? Yes, this one. So that's a, uh, sorry, what is it? Phillips Fox. With a, was it South Africa? South African soccer team. team. Is that the World Cup.
3: That's yes, I believe it's the Visa. So yeah, it's a World Cup um, leopard.
2: And and do you recall what
3: uh, you would have had in that particular bag? I would have had a um, apron. Yes. Uh, my box of Yu-Gi-Oh trading cards. Of you what, sorry? Yu-Gi-Oh trading cards, trading card game. Okay. Um, and that would be it. I might have had another food, a food item, but I'm not,
0: I'm not too sure. Jack told police he crossed Military Road to go to the takeaway food shops on Ben Boyd Road, opposite the Oaks Hotel. He bought some licorice and a drink from a nearby convenience store, where he encountered Morgan. Would also enter the store to withdraw cash from the ATM prior to making his way to the pub. The men had a brief conversation.
3: I walked into the convenience store where um, the person who I thought is sure this guy was trying to get money out of the machine, very funny. I then had a small conversation. He uh the to this guy, Morgan Morgan Morgan. Morgan, yes, Morgan, yes. Morgan asked me if I wanted to use the money, uh, the ATM. I, he asked you, I, He sorry. asked me, I replied no, and then
0: left. Listener, this year, we're all looking forward to a fresh start. A great way to start fresh is with some self-care and fresh scents from Native. Native Aluminum Free Deodorant is a great addition to your 2021 routine. Native cares about what you put on your armpits That's why their deodorants ingredients list includes things you've actually heard of, like coconut oil and shea butter. Another plus? None of their products are tested on animals, and almost everything is vegan. Switching to Native from an antiperspirant doesn't mean you'll have to worry about that midday B.O. either. Native will have you walking around smelling like coconut and vanilla, citrus and herbal musk, or maybe even lavender and rose. You can choose from over 10 scents including their classics and rotating seasonals, so you're guaranteed to find one you love. Native Deodorant has over 16,000 five-star reviews and has been featured in the Today Show for a reason. It works. Make the switch to Native today by going to nativedo.com obscura or use promo code obscura at checkout and get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeocom obscura or use promo code OBSCURA at checkout for 20% off your first order. Police were in possession of CCTV footage, which captured Jack entering an Indian takeaway shop at 1.04 a.m. He could be seen looking across the road in the direction of the Oaks, where Morgan had just entered the front bar area. After Morgan left the pub at 1.28 a.m., he briefly spoke with a security guard Before heading up Military Road, at the same time, Jack was seen on CCTV, leaving the takeaway shop and walking quickly after Morgan, up Military Road, and toward the traffic lights where Morgan would have crossed the road to Watson Street. Detective showed Jack the CCTV footage where he was following Morgan and asked him if he'd ever seen him before. Do you
3: know who that is? It's me.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us. Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. So
2: that's the same bag you've got? Yeah. Okay, and you said you own a number yes. of those shirts. Yeah. And a number of pants. Do you recall, uh, does this assist us in determining what shoes you were wearing that particular night? Have you ever seen him before? No. Never?
3: Not to my knowledge. Sorry? Not to my knowledge, no. I mean, it's possible that I may have walked, walked like, sure, cross paths. But at you don't miles. know it, no. no.
0: Detectives asked Jack why he was following Morgan after he left the pub.
3: Why'd what, you jog? It's cold. Mum always tells me if you're cold, go for a jog. How far did you jog? From? Not very far.
2: How far is not very far?
3: Oh, maybe. I don't. I don't know. Um, from from the lights, a little bit after the lights, to a little bit before the opening to the restaurant. The the the, the, the um.
0: Police found Jack's response that he was jogging because he was cold to be on, to say the least. Usually, it should have taken him no more than around 15 minutes to walk from the cooking school to his home in Spruce Street. Police were curious as to why Jack walked up Military Road toward Watson Street, when it would have been quicker for him to take an alternate route home. Jack explained that he wanted to confirm that he'd turn off the lights at the cooking school because he'd be in trouble if they were left on. As he continued his way up Military Road, he claimed he caught up to Morgan, by now was standing on the median strip.
3: Where you were, um, over here on
2: bimboid Road, um, and then you've indicated you've sort of walked back up Military Road, across Watson, if you're cold. I'm just wondering why you would go that way. That doesn't look like the most direct um,
3: route. I don't know. I I don't, When I when I get tired, I don't really... Pay attention to a lot of things. I think it was because I wanted to check in at work, the front of work.
2: Have you ever been to his apartment?
3: That's that block of one of the blocks of apartments, so and you no. Know.
2: Correct. No, never.
3: No. I might be the only person to tell you, about my password as well. But I'm not very good at remembering things. Sorry, you're not very good at remembering things. Not fine details, no.
0: Detectives turn back to the question of knives.
2: Do you own many knives?
3: Uh, we as a family do. I have like, the two knives that I showed you, and then the sword, which doesn't technically classify as a knife. And then there's the knives that we in the council's own, which are all the ones we can remember. Um, On the other nights, I guess you could say I have access to would be the ones at work.
2: The have you taken any knowledge from work? The uh, when you got home and used the internet. Sorry, did you have the
0: want anything? Jack told police that he arrived home from work at 2 a.m., which was later than usual because he spent time looking at furniture and household items left out on the footpath by local residents as part of a scheduled rubbish collection. He stated he checked his emails before going to sleep, but awoke not long afterwards to the distant sound of sirens. The explanations all sounded reasonable enough at this stage. Even though Jack's behavior and responses during the interview had certainly been unusual, there were no grounds to detain him any further and he was released without charge. In the absence of the fingerprint and DNA samples Jack had refused to provide, police continued to review the available evidence. When Jack attended work the evening after his initial interview, his boss inquired whether the police had been in touch. Jack shrugged the question off, saying police only wanted to speak with him because he'd coincidentally been seen following Morgan as he walked home. When Jack's boss asked him directly if he killed Morgan, Jack flatly denied any involvement but quipped, If I did do it, there's no way they'd catch me. Two days later, the lead detective on the case received an unexpected phone call. Jack Helson was on the line with a surprising admission. He told the detective that he lied in the previous interview, now saying that he had in fact spoken to Morgan. Jack told police he was calling from the car park of the Woolworths supermarket in Neutral Bay. Five-minute walk from the cooking school, police raced to the car park where they saw Jack with the same bag he'd worn during his interview two days prior. This impromptu meeting turned into another interview held in the car park, but regrettably wasn't recorded by police. During the conversation, Jack confirmed that when he caught up to Morgan on the median strip on Military Road, he spoke to him, saying, I started talking to him, and he was, like, upset and depressed, so I said to him, Can I cheer you up? Jack went on to say that the men went home to Morgan's apartment, where they engaged in consensual sexual activity. According to Jack, he then left to go home after Morgan fell asleep. But as Jack slipped out of the townhouse into the darkness, he noticed a young, blonde woman heading towards Morgan's apartment. She noticed Jack leaving at the same time and appeared angry. Jack suddenly became emotional in front of the detectives as he blurted out, I think that's why he got murdered. Jack explained he didn't provide this information in his original interview because he was scared. What if the woman who attacked Morgan came after him too? But this time police didn't buy Jack's story. Detectives had strong suspicions that Jack had made contact with them in order to change his version of events. Now by placing himself at the crime scene, his DNA and fingerprints could be accounted for when the pending test results came back. Jack was arrested on the spot, and his bag seized. He was taken to the police station, but refused to answer further questions or confirm what he told police in the car park earlier. That afternoon, while Jack was detained, officers searched his parents' apartment and four-wheel drive vehicle, as well as the Sydney cooking school. Jack's clothes and laptop were seized, as were the two knives he'd previously shown police during their initial visit. When officers reviewed the inventory of knives at the cooking school, they noted that one was missing. A comprehensive search of the area surrounding the cooking school was conducted. Including drains, roof cuttering, and garbage bins. But the missing knife was nowhere to be found. When police accessed Jack's laptop, they also found concerning material, including graphic autopsy images and animated child pornography. Two counts of possessing child abuse material against Jack would remain pending till he'd been excluded or charged. In relation to the murder investigation, Again, as there was no grounds for Jack to be detained further, he was free to go. Not for long. The forensic testing revealed spots of Morgan's blood on Jack's bag, which he'd unsuccessfully attempted to clean. All police were yet to obtain Jack's DNA. This was sufficient evidence for now. On October 8th, Jack was arrested at his family's apartment for the indecent assault and murder of Morgan Huxley. Given Jack was formally charged and now on remand, awaiting his next court appearance, police were now legally able to collect a DNA sample following Jack's arrest. Police received further confirmation that his fingerprints were the ones found on Morgan's bedroom door. At Jack's court appearance a week after his arrest, bail was refused. While detectives were waiting on the DNA results, they executed search warrants on Jack's medical files by his doctor and psychiatrist, as well as clinical notes about Jack's history and diagnosis. They found details about Jack's previous admissions to having intrusive thoughts about stabbing someone on the way home from work. Jack's most recent session with his treating psychologist was five days after the murder. After a psychologist was informed that Jack had been charged, the psychologist told police that if the charge was proved, then considerable weight would be added to the view that Mr. Calsole exhibits significant callous, unemotional traits, adding, such traits are not an integral aspect of either an ADHD or autism spectrum disorder. Police wouldn't have to wait long for further proof that Jack was at Morgan's apartment on the night in question. When the DNA results came back, the foreign DNA found on Morgan's penis was matched to Jack. The question of Jack's mental health and autism diagnosis had to be assessed to allow prosecutors to determine whether to proceed with the charges as they stood. If it could be proved that Jack had more than likely been in the grip of a psychotic episode at the time of the murder, or that his capacity to understand the difference between right and wrong was affected by a mental illness or autism, the way the case would be prosecuted would change significantly and a plea under the Mental Health Forensic Provisions Act may be considered. The prosecution psychologist, who assessed Jack while he awaited trial, described the accused killer as intelligent and articulate. Jack told the psychologist he had compulsive behaviors, which were symptomatic of his being on the autism spectrum. He explained his mental health history, including the various medications he'd been prescribed over the years proactive way Jack volunteered this information indicated he had a great deal of insight into his mental health. However, given the circumstances, the psychologist felt that Jack was simply setting up a defense so he could argue diminished responsibility. The psychologist found that Jack didn't find it difficult to interpret the behavior of others or have a limited ability to exercise appropriate understanding in social situations which are common features of autism. He, in fact, had a sound grasp of accurately understanding people's behavior and motivations, nor were any of the compulsive behaviors Jack claimed to possess observed during the interview. What he did demonstrate was defiance, denial of his involvement in the murder, and an inability to accept responsibility. Several lies told by Jack had already been uncovered including the one about him looking through household furniture on the footpath on his way home after work on the night of the murder. The psychologist noticed that throughout the interview, Jack made unflinching eye contact, which was unsettling. She also felt a coldness emanating from the accused killer. The psychologist concluded that both during Jack's assessment and at the time he murdered Morgan, he was not experiencing any mental illness or autism spectrum disorder. Jack was mentally competent to stand trial. Part 4 Oh, what a tangled web we weave. Morgan Huxley's favorite color was yellow. When the trial commenced in early March 2015, at the New South Wales Supreme Court, his family and friends wore small yellow roses in a show of solidarity, honoring the memory of their slain son, brother, and friend, Jack's family were also in attendance. In court, Jack pleaded not guilty to both charges. Opening arguments couldn't have been more different. The prosecution told the court, The case is objective, straightforward, and matter-of-fact. It adds up. It makes sense. The truth is simple. It's awful, but it's simple. The man killed Mr. Huxley for no reason. The defense opened by describing Jack as timid, shy, reliable, and incapable of cruelty. With a lack of maturity and insight into a situation, he's not a person who is overly engaging. He has difficulty communicating. The defense claimed there was no proof that Jack targeted Morgan as the murder weapon hadn't been found. The court heard that before Jack left work on September 8th, he took a knife from the cooking school and hid it in his back. After leaving work, Jack visited the convenience store, where he saw Morgan, who was withdrawing money. Morgan then crossed the road and attempted to enter the beer garden at the Oaks, only to be turned away by security staff. Jack watched as Morgan then went to another door of the pub and entered the front bar. Jack lingered on the footpath outside the Indian takeaway shop for about a half an hour, "'chatting to a security guard "'and remarking that Morgan wasn't wearing any shoes. "'Half an hour later, "'Jack followed Morgan home as he left the pub, "'breaking into a jog to catch up with him. "'Arriving at Watson Street, "'Jack loitered outside Morgan's apartment "'for around 20 minutes. "'After Morgan went inside and collapsed on his bed "'fully clothed, quickly falling asleep, "'Jack approached the front door of the apartment, "'knocking twice.' When he tried to open it, he was surprised to find it unlocked. Jack quietly made his way upstairs into the darkness, where he heard Morgan's snores emanating from a bedroom where the door was partially open. Jack crept along the landing and into the bedroom where Morgan was lying on his bed. Jack lunged forward, pulling down Morgan's shorts and groping his penis. Morgan was startled awake by the sudden violation, thrashing about in the dark. In an attempt to fight off his unknown attacker, Jack started stabbing Morgan with the knife he'd been carrying in his bag, slashing repeatedly at his back, head, neck, and shoulders. Jack then stole Morgan's phone before exiting the bedroom, running down the stairs and closing the front door of the apartment behind him. Concealing the bloodstained knife, Jack ran home. The court heard that he disposed of the knife and Morgan's phone, at a time and place unknown. Immediately following the attack, Morgan managed to clamber off the bed, blood pouring from the 28 stab wounds he had sustained. Choking on his own blood, he was struggling for breath. He only made it as far as his doorway, before his flatmate Jean awoke and discovered the horrifying scene. The corps heard that the noises Jean heard before she found Morgan were most likely made when he struggled to his feet shuffled toward the doorway, and then collapsed unconscious on the floor. Jack, meanwhile, had arrived home, checked his emails, and went to sleep. Like the knife in Morgan's phone, the clothes Jack wore when he murdered Morgan were disposed of in an unknown manner and were never located. As we know, unfortunately for the prosecution, the second interview between Jack and detectives in the car park wasn't recorded, so it was therefore inadmissible as evidence. However, the forensics officer testified that he considered a range of scenarios as to how Morgan's blood came to be on Jack's back. ABC News reported that these scenarios included the bag being placed on the bed or the floor, or brushing up against a wall, or other surfaces, which were stained with Morgan's blood. The forensics officer told the court that the most likely scenario was that the bag was slung over Jack's torso while he repeatedly stabbed Morgan. This was supported by the large amount of shallow stab wounds, which wouldn't have resulted in a large quantity of projected blood. The officer testified that in the unlikely event that Morgan was stabbed by another person, Jack would have to have been in close proximity when this occurred. The defense pointed to what is described as serious errors in the police investigation. They claimed that despite Morgan having a heated confrontation with the landlord of his former business premises, no DNA sample had been taken from the man in question. The defense also claimed that the tip of the knife which broke off in Morgan's skull during the attack wasn't forensically tested. Accounting for the presence of Jack's DNA on Morgan's penis, the defense claimed that the sexual contact between Jack and Morgan was consensual. But this was rejected by the prosecution, as Morgan was known to be heterosexual had never shown an interest in having same-sex encounters. When Jack took the stand in his defense, he told the court he had no idea why he'd previously had thoughts about stabbing someone on the way home from work. He also denied ever having a desire to kill anyone, saying, I want to make amends and tell the truth about the terrible lies I've told." The jury heard a version of events that differed markedly to what Jack initially told police. He testified that he started talking to Morgan while standing on the median strip on Military Road after Morgan left the pub. Asking how his week had been, Jack claimed Morgan seemed sad, responding that he'd had a stressful week. Jack told the court that Morgan invited him home and inside the apartment where they continued their conversation with Morgan speaking about some work issues and concerns over his father's health. Jack told the court he asked what Morgan did to relieve stress, saying, Do you want to do things with me? Jack claimed that Morgan hesitated, then agreed. Jack told the court that after Morgan invited him upstairs to his bedroom, Jack fondled him for some minutes in a consensual encounter. Jack testified that one or more intruders then suddenly burst into the room and hit him in the head before attacking Morgan. Jack stated that he was terrified and fled the apartment, but didn't tell anyone what had happened, because he was scared of the ramifications. During his time on the stand, Jack seemed to relish the opportunity to tell his story, basking in the attention. He clearly enjoyed being the sole focus of this stage of proceedings. Almost treating them like a joke, especially during cross examination. When the prosecution asked Jack why he didn't notice the attacker approaching in Morgan's bedroom, he smirked, saying, I was concentrating on other things. On March 18, 2015, after hearing two weeks of evidence, the jury gave their verdict. They rejected Jack's account that he and Morgan engaged in consensual sex and that Morgan had been killed by an intruder. Morgan's family and close friends let out cries of relief as it was announced that Jack was found guilty of murder and indecent assault. Outside court following the verdict, Morgan's former girlfriend, Jessica, made a statement to the media on behalf of the Huxley family. An inspiring, generous, and loving young man, Morgan was beginning to make his way in the world. He had hopes and dreams that he will never be able to realize. He will never get married, never enjoy running around the park with his children. His life was stolen by a worthless psychopath. The Huxley family thanked the Crown, the jury, and the detectives for their dedication to justice for Morgan. We love you, Morg. Following the verdict, new information was released to the public about two men who had contacted police after Jack was charged and his image released to the media, two separate men contacted detectives, telling them how they recognized Jack as someone who had stalked them. One man had been followed home a week after Morgan's murder, almost to his front door, before telling Jack to fuck off. According to the Sydney Morning Herald, the other man told police that two months earlier, he'd been smoking a cigarette outside his unit on the same street where the Kelsols lived. Suddenly, Jack jumped out from behind some bushes, but the man chased him away. This information had been withheld from the public for fears. It may have been prejudicial to the jury. Now convicted, Jack was facing the possibility of life imprisonment with a standard non-parole period of 20 years. But first, another psychological assessment was required. As sentencing on April 29, 2015, the prosecution's psychologist told the court that during her most recent interview with Jack, he was in an upbeat mood and happy to talk. Jack's psychometric tests revealed that his overall level of intellectual functioning was found to be equal to or better than 95% of the normal population. The psychologist questioned the history Jack provided about his diagnosis of depression, ADHD, autism, and Asperger's as it conflicted with other medical reports admitted to the trial. She found Jack to be articulate with no evidence of autism or symptoms consistent with ADHD or depression. The psychologist suggested Jack had a possible personality disorder with psychopathic traits, saying He has described feelings of rage originating in childhood. He reported experiencing thoughts of harming others although he reported no intentions of acting on these thoughts. The notes from Jack's previous treating psychologist indicated that while anger was a key part of Jack's internal psychic world, this didn't pose a threat to himself or others. During the 15-month period Jack was seeing his psychologist, he denied any significant feelings of anxiety or depression, or thoughts of self-harm or homicidal ideas. The court heard that Jack's previous psychiatrist diagnosed possible bipolar disorder and felt that a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder was also possible. Considering Jack's history of learning difficulties and social adjustment issues, the psychiatrist said he didn't think that Jack had a psychotic illness and no symptoms were reported around the time of the murder or in the year following Jack's arrest. A separate psychiatrist considered that Jack... Could probably be diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, but he found no evidence suggesting a major mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. When it came to Jack's prospects of rehabilitation and his likelihood of reoffending, one of his psychiatrists noted that his intelligence made him capable of participating in counseling and rehabilitation. He had no pattern of antisocial behavior prior to killing Morgan. And no history of alcohol or substance abuse. The psychiatrist's main concern was Jack's admissions of experiencing fantasies of killing a stranger with a knife. Another of Jack's previous psychiatrists was unable to make a conclusive prediction about the likelihood of reoffending, saying, it is not easy to understand the motivation and it is impossible to know exactly how or why the murder occurred. What can be said is that the murder did not occur in the context of psychosis or major sustained mood disturbance. The violence did not appear to be driven by delusions, hallucinations, or disorganized behavior suggestive of a mental illness, such as schizophrenia. The psychiatrists noted that the overwhelming majority of people with autism do not violently offend and then lie about their whereabouts to police, as Jack had done. The psychiatrist emphasized that there were limits of assessing Jack's likelihood of reoffending based on a single interview in previous reports, adding, At this stage, it is not possible to offer the opinion that repeat offending will not occur or that the risk can be reduced significantly with psychological treatment. The prosecution psychologist was highly pessimistic about Jack's prospects of further offending telling the court that when he was informed about the fatal attack in his neighborhood, he feigned surprise and concern about the fact there had been a murder, given he is a young man of superior intelligence with a known history of deceit and emotional detachment. It is my opinion that he remains dangerous, and accordingly, the risk of future dangerousness remains high. Victim impact statements by Morgan's family were read to the court, It was clear that the tabloid media portrayal of Morgan and the salacious and distasteful headlines that characterized reporting on the case had deeply affected his family and close friends. ABC News reported that Morgan's sister, Tiffany, told the court, I don't feel joy in my life anymore. I don't know when I will again. Morgan's murder has snuffed out so much light in my life that I sometimes wonder what the point is. My family and I had to sit there in silence as Morgan's killer told his calculated lies to the court. For some strange reason, there was a small part of me that was hoping once the trial was over, Morgan would come back to me. Little did I realize how much further I would fall into pain and depression after the trial was finished and Morgan was still gone. Morgan was dealt a death sentence for no other reason than to fill someone's sick fantasy. The court heard how Morgan's brother Oliver couldn't escape thoughts of how terrified his brother must have been as he was being attacked, saying, Kalsul took Morgan's life. For what? Kalsul tried to get away with this. He lied and tricked people all the way along, but he failed. My guilt for knowing that if I'd rung his phone at 1230 that night, as I was going to, I could have saved his life. I see Morgan waking up, trying to stop the dark figure on top of him. I see Morgan's strong arms trying to fend off what he can't see. I see Morgan covered in blood, trying to breathe. I see Morgan crying and screaming. Inside, he's so confused. He must have thought he was dreaming. Morgan's mother, Dee, told the court, My youngest son was taken away from me in the most vicious and horrific way possible. While his father, Alan, lamented, I will have to live the rest of my life not having an answer. Jack did not give evidence during the sentencing hearing. The prosecution submitted that Morgan's mother was in the worst-case category and that the community expectations could only be met by imposing a life sentence. Before announcing the sentence, the judge told the court that while he didn't feel that Jack's crimes were the product of immaturity, his youth should be taken into account... He had no previous convictions and was regarded as a person of otherwise good character. The judge noted that while it was clear that Jack previously had fantasies about following someone home after work and stabbing them, Morgan was probably selected at random. But the judge was satisfied that Jack pursued Morgan, hoping that the opportunity to attack him may arise, telling the court... The killing is rendered more serious by the fact that it was committed by an intruder into the victim's home, and while the victim was incapacitated, this is a most chilling case of murder, whether the offender killed for the thrill of it, or as a result of a fantasy or obsession. I'm unable to say, it was utterly senseless and needless, despite the psychiatrist being unable to fathom a reason for it, it must have been the doing of a very disturbed individual He is not at all remorseful and he continues to deny his guilt. There is nothing to indicate he has any empathy over the death of Mr. Huxley or for the plight of his family, friends, and colleagues. Prospects of rehabilitation are, at the least, questionable. I am satisfied that the killing of Mr. Huxley was done for no other reason than to serve some irrational purpose known only to the offender There is no conclusive psychiatric explanation for the offender's heinous conduct. There is no identifiable diagnosis of a psychiatric condition that is amendable to treatment.
2: I regret that I have not been able to find words capable of adequately describing the level of their grief, anguish and suffering. But they should be assured that they have my most sincere sympathy. Satisfied that he entered the home for the sole purpose of killing Mr Huxley if he could. No other potential explanation presents as a reasonable possibility. I reject completely his account at trial that he was invited into the unit and then up to the bedroom in order to engage in consensual homosexual activity. The evidence is entirely contrary to the notion Mr Huxley would have been at all interested in such activities. Mr would you stand up please? For the crimes of which the jury found you guilty, you are convicted. For the crime of indecent assault, you are sentenced to imprisonment for a period of one year, with effect from the 8th of October 2013. For the crime of murder, you are sentenced to imprisonment, comprising a non-parole period of 30 years, and a balance of the term of the sentence of 10 years.
0: The judge went on to say... Jack was sentenced to a total of 40 years and three months in prison. He reappeared in court four months later, charged with possessing child pornography, which you'll recall police found on Jack's laptop, and a hard drive when they were seized back in September 2013 as a part of a murder investigation. Some of the 30 animated child pornography images depicted children under 16 engaged in sex acts and poses with older men. Jack pled guilty and received a sentence of six months to be served concurrently. In August 2017, Jack appealed his sentence seeking a reduction of ten years. However, the prosecutor argued that there was an ongoing need for the community to be protected, saying, This was a truly heinous, chilling, and grotesque example of murder. In October 2017, the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal dismissed the appeal on the grounds that there was no conclusive evidence that Jack was suffering from a psychiatric condition, that the sentence was unreasonable, unjust, or manifestly excessive. Jack Calson remains in prison. He will not be eligible for parole until early 2044 when he will be 51 years old. His continued denial of the true level of his involvement means we may never really know whether Morgan's murder was a crime of opportunity or whether he had unwittingly been stalked by Jack over a prolonged period. All the Huxleys have left are their memories and plaques at two waterside locations in Sydney commemorating Morgan. One is situated close to the location of both his former business and his mother's previous home. Installed by Morgan's family, the inscription reads, Your life was stolen, forever loved, forever missed. Your spirit forever here by the sea. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.